This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I offer today are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. Well, we're so excited. We have a special guest with you today as we continue our education series and conversations about how we care for our babies at the start of this new school year. Um, I'd like to introduce to some uh, and, and, and present to others uh, the new principal of Central High School, my alma mater, full disclosure, Miss um, Sharice Ayers. Sharice, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, we, we uh, first just want to get folks to, to know you, and then we're going to dive into a topic today um, centered around uh, the, the spiritual and cultural care of our babies as we go back into the school, in particular, our children of color. This is uh, what I'm so excited to have this conversation with Sharice about is because not only has she been an educator for many years, but, but also um, she is leading a cultural seat of 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 St. Paul um central serves as a, as as has served as a central place a central gathering space a central conversation piece for the care um in in uh, uh and well-being of our kids of color I went central touring uh theater central black box was one of my stomping grounds when I was there and so I got a lot of sp- cultural care out of Central in in ways that many kids in many different school districts just don't have the same. And so I want to definitely talk about that. But Sharice, tell us a little bit about how you how you came to be the leader that you are um, in the district in St. Paul schools. And then uh, we want to dive into this conversation. Absolutely. So first and foremost, I am a daughter of Rondo. I am from, born and raised in St. Paul, Minnesota, in in the Rondo community. And I'm also a graduate of Central High School, a proud member of the class of 1997. Um, Not only am I a graduate myself, but I'm a second generation graduate. Um, My mother attended Central as well and graduated in 1970. Um, My sister, who's who's now passed away, um, graduated in 1987, and she was a big part of my life and and coming to Central to see her play basketball um, and to be in plays with Jan Mandel um, in her early years at, at Central um, were a big part of my life. Um, and then also I'm a Central parent. So I have two children that are here and uh, I lived in Atlanta for a while with my family and we moved back home. This is home for me about 10 years ago. And one of the things I was really excited about was the opportunity for my own children to go to Central. And so, um, because like you were saying, Anthony, I understand the the power of a Central education and what that means. And so I, I cultivated my leadership voice at the beginning of it here at Central High School. And so um, when this opportunity became available. It was actually my daughter, who is currently a senior, who told me that I should apply for the job. And uh, with with her blessing, I went ahead and applied. Um, and, and I'm so excited to be in this position. And it's really about the community and serving the community. And one of the things that I have said um, to, to my bosses, you know, in St. Paul and was part of, of my interview is like, you know, of course I am accountable to the district, 
right? I said, but what I am most concerned about in terms of accountability is being accountable to my community because there is no way that I'm going to go out to my community and tell them that it's not working here. There's no way I can go to my parents and tell them that the, the school that their grandchildren go to is not productive and is not doing what it's supposed to, to do. Um, I got a card today from a community member who's an alum of Central, who also happens to be my cousin. And she sent me a card to, to let me know that she was supporting me. And I can't go to her and tell her that her neighborhood school is not what it's supposed to be because that means I'm not doing my job. And so I, I accept that accountability with all humility uh, and knowing that as we're in this together. And that's our theme for this year. We're in this together. And together is an acronym because I'm an English teacher. And so I love a good acronym. And what that what together stands for is trust, outreach, growth, empathy, transparency, holding space, equity and respect. And that has to be our foundation. And if we don't have those things within this building and in the community as we connect to each other, we don't have anything. And so that is where we start. And it is with that we will build. And the other part of the, the theme is cultivating a central where everyone thrives. Because for years, because Central is the oldest high school in the state of Minnesota, for years, Central has been turning out an amazing product. And we do an excellent job of serving some people. And mm. what we have to work on is making sure that we are serving those from marginalized communities, from the Black community, and those who are maybe not as savvy. Now, I'm Black, my children are Black, and they are doing well here. OK, but they also have parents who are both educators, who are both savvy uh, as it relates to the education system and how to navigate that. And you shouldn't have to have a savvy parent and know how to navigate mm -hmm. the education system in order mm -hmm. to get what you're supposed to get from our public schools. And so that is um, a, a mission of mine to make sure that we are cultivating a central where everyone thrives. See, I, I told y'all, I told y'all <laughs> who we had coming. <laughs> wow. Well, there's a couple, hey, Anthony, a couple of ahead, comments ahead, I want to make real quick. And and two, um, Sharice, the, the pride, and I can just hear the humility and the pride of uh, not only being alumni of Central, but being from the community. And because I, I could hear, I can hear um, the the importance and the weight you carry with this position for your community because it's there. And I, the reason why I brought that up is, is you know, I've mentioned on, on a previous counter story that, that the, really the only position I've ever held in my life where I felt that same sense of pride, that same sense of duty is when I was commissioner for the Mille Lacs band of which I'm a member and that it it that takes on a totally different um i think feeling responsibility uh humility the, the decisions you make i i heard your in your description the decisions you make impact our families you know the decisions i made impacted cousins aunts uncles i mean so there's this sense of responsibility sense of pride and this overwhelming drive 
to do the best that you can do for your own community. And I heard that. <clears throat> the other thing I heard <laughs> was that your mother was a 1970 graduate from Central. I'm a 72 graduate from Central, but the one across the river. So, you know, I know early as we were starting, you were talking about you, you know, you graduated from Central many years ago, and I graduated right after your mom did. So, so I just thought I would throw that out there too. So congratulations in your appointment. And I just retired last year from um, teaching at Metro State. So I, I was a um, tenured professor in uh, social work at Metro State. Uh, so I have some experience teaching, but not the same um, same type of experience that you have in higher in, in, in education. However, one thing that I have a hard time wrapping my mind around um, I think relates back to some of what you brought up in terms of how some portions of our community have been successful at Central and others haven't. And if I was to wrap that back around, one th um, in terms of, uh, you know, in Minnesota, we have very large discrepancies, not only between graduation rates, for our BIPOC communities, children of color, African-American, Native American, Asian, whatever. But there, these, these disparities, you know, exist across the board within our schools in terms of the subjects that are taught. And I think I, I myself, you know, my children, uh, my, my daughter's a, a junior at University of Iowa. My son graduated about 10, 12 years ago from Iowa also. But is this idea of STEM and or, you know, things that are happening in the classroom that seem to increase these disparities or, or not diminish them, right? Is it beyond just reading, writing, and math? <laughs> do, do you know what I'm asking? Because I, 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 I'm trying to really understand where and why these disparities continue and what is it? You know, what, what, what is causing that if, that, if that's not too big of a question? No, not at all. So it's really a chicken or the egg situation we have. And so schools are a microcosm of society. So, of course, we have gaps within schools because we have the same gaps outside of schools. If we look at home ownership, if we look at health, if we look at um, wealth, uh, the, the disparities are there. And so there, there goes our schools in that same that same vein. So, so all of those same things are reproduced here. And so what that means though, in terms of how do we fix it? Because I'm not a fan of admiring problems. I'm not going to climb a mountain and look at the sea of problems and say, oh my gosh, you've got all these problems, but what do we do about it? So what we have to do is be intentional and we have to be reflective in our practice. And we have to be, because, because our racism is systemic and so we have to be very intentional about dismantling it and then dis it's, it, dismantling it every time it comes up. We cannot play um, educational whack-a-mole with all of our problems. We have to attack it on all fronts. That means dealing with implicit bias. It means dealing with explicit bias. It means scheduling for equity. So when I talk about a central that 
works for everyone, where everyone thrives. That means that the scheduling, when we look at our building, they call it a master schedule. I don't like calling it a master schedule, but our building schedule, that we are making sure that that is equitable and that everyone across race is able to benefit from all of the programming that we have and that we offer. It means that we are consistently asking ourselves questions about our practices and our policies and our procedures uh, as they relate through an equity lens. And so when we make a procedure or, or establish a procedure or a policy, we ask, how is this impacting our students by race? Does this decision that we are making promote disparity or, um, or or take us back from disparity. And we have to do that all the time. Angela Davis said, and I, I'm going to mess up the quote, but Angela Davis said something to the effect of, we have to act as though we can radically transform the world and we have to do it every day. And so that's the work that we're doing here at 275 North Lexington Parkway. And I like to remind people of that. And then we have to be consistent. It can't be enough for us to have a meeting about it or a professional development about it and say, okay, check that off the list. Let's go. But we have to mm -hmm. consistently check our data. Okay. What are the results that we are getting from the work that we are doing? And because we, again, we know that schools are microcosms of society. We have to believe, again, with that radical transformation that we can then impact society. So I believe as does my staff believe, and if they don't believe it yet, they'll get there. But, you know, I only been here for a little bit, but we'll get there, is that we can radically transform our school. And as we radically transform our school and we cultivate a central where everybody thrives, then those kids will go out into the world and will be that change. And I know that's somebody else's quote, but be that change that we need to see in the world. I am loving this. Uh, I'm going to jump told you, in. I just need to say it one more time. I told you. <laughs> As if you need to tell us, Anthony. Come on. Anything you do is, is, is going to resonate with us. Come on now. So, Cherise, when you, when you speak, first of all, I'm wondering if you're going to uh, have the, your, your motto of together and, and the acronym that you shared with us with, with the, the breakdown of trust, outreach, Growing together, empathy, transparency, holding space, equity, respect. I wonder if you're going to put that on a sweatshirt because um, I am first in line to buy one. We sure will. We sure will. All right. All right. And then secondly, when you speak about system change, I mean, you're talking our language, right? Our respective language of what we speak about a lot on, on our podcast. But the intentionality is is what I'm really interested in, but also the urgency, right? Infusing a sense of urgency because I often say that our families do not have time for us to admire the problem. And I know that you don't admire problems as as a leader, but there there's we need to inject this sense of urgency, which I which I find in Minnesota is often lacking because so many of the policymakers and elected leaders don't have those lived experiences to inform them which is very different than the folks that you're on right now with our crew, Connor Stories. We have lived experiences that inform our decision-making and we feel the sense of urgency because we've lived it. And, and we see ourselves in, in the lives of our young children. There before the grace of God go I is, is what I often say, right? I want to get to, though, I, I want to uh, come down into a point that you made about implicit bias and, and teachers getting it. 
you know, there are studies. I used to be in the education public policy space for some time before uh, being in, in this space that I'm currently uh, in. With regard to research, there's research in the past that I'm aware of that speaks to this implicit bias of teachers who don't recognize and understand or, or uh, support the uh, belief that our BIPOC children have the brilliance that they have, right? So it's called the belief gap. And the way it manifests itself is, is it shows up in different ways. Uh, something as innocuous to some people uh, that it might sound that when a, a BIPOC child in a classroom raises their hand, uh, that white teacher doesn't call on them often enough or at all. And so the child can, in, in all of their excitement, want to be a part of the problem solving and engagement in the classroom. But repeatedly, you know, our young, brilliant BIPOC children are overlooked. And after a while, then they have this feeling of othering, right? They don't belong. And they are othered and their self-esteem begins to plummet. And, and there's research behind this, right? So give us then some of your kernels of wisdom on what parents can do in light of this behavior, right? Because this behavior is widespread. It's not unique to any one school in Minnesota. And, and in my understanding, it's widespread across the country, Help us understand some very practical ways that our parents, uh, particularly our BIPOC parents, can navigate those situations. Sure. So, so first off, I'll say no one should have to do this, right? In a perfect world, you should be able to send your children to school, be they black, brown, you know, or whatever, and believe that they are getting an equitable shot. Right. In a perfect world. And we all know our world is not perfect. So what does that mean? How do we mitigate that as a parent of color? It means that you are connecting with teachers. You are showing up. You are going to open house when they have open house. You are meeting teachers. You are looking them, looking them in the eye. Say, hey, I came to meet you. My name is Sharice Ayers. I am, you know, Camille's mother, and I'm, I'm here to meet you. I want you to know that I'm here to support you and that this child knows what they need to do. And this child needs what you have, because what you have as a teacher is invaluable. I tell my teachers, I said, you all have the good stuff. You all have the magic. And so the kids need to be in your room. So whatever you have to do to keep them in the room, that's what you do, because that's where they need to be. Right. Um, and, and so that's that's a part of it. It's showing up so that people know that this one is covered, that you can reach out to me as a parent if my child is struggling. And what you can also do is reach out and let me know that my child is doing amazing and doing amazing things. So as a parent, that's a part of what we need to do to make sure that we are checking in with teachers, with administration, with other school staff to let them know that this child has support. Now, again, in a perfect world, we should not have to do that. But we know implicit bias is real. And sometimes it helps for, for folks who don't look like you, for folks who don't look like us, to know, hey, this one has got that support. 
Now, and I know you just asked from a parent perspective, but I do feel obligated to then talk about what we have to do as a school to make sure that we are not harming children. Because, um, and, and here's the thing, and I, I'll be the first one to tell you, I've harmed children before. And when I say harm, I don't mean like I've intentionally hurt a person or I'm not putting my hands on people. But what I'm saying is that in a people-centered um, business, which education is a business, we deal with feelings and we deal with emotions and we deal with people that we don't know. And shoot, even people we do know. And I know all of us have probably hurt or harmed someone that we love and care a whole lot about. And so as an educator, and I've been in the business for 20 years, I know I have harmed kids. But what I do is once I have figured out, oh, shoot, this this practice that I have, it's harmful. This mindset that I have about this particular kid or this type of kid is harmful. And so I'm in a constant state of critical self-reflection to say, what can I do differently as a human being? to not do that and to not harm people moving forward. And so as an educator and as the the chief educator, um, and I don't even like to say the word chief, but it's the head, the, the head or lead educator in this building is show up and be present in teachers' classrooms, not to do a gotcha, not to say, oh, I want to make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but to make connection and to build community. So I want the teachers in the building and the students in the building to know that I am an, I'm an educator at all times and in all spaces, and we're here to make connection together. And so then when you're doing something great, I can let you know that you're doing something great. If I see a kid thriving and doing their thing, I can call home and, and tell them, hey, this is the principal. I want to let you know that Jamal is having an excellent day. I just saw him in Miss Bowers' class, and he had this wonderful insight on this James Baldwin piece. I want to be able to do that. And then when I see teachers who are making some missteps, I want to be able to come back with them and correct them on that and say, hey, you were doing this. Let's talk about that. I like to ask questions. Let's talk about that. What were you intending from that. And then kind of let them know maybe the outcome or the impact that you were expecting, that's not what you got. And let's talk about why. Because when I talk about trust, when we talk about together, the first part of trust is assuming positive intent. And so I believe in my heart that all of the adult people who have spent their time and talent and treasure learning to be educators did so because they want to have a positive impact in the life of children. That is what I believe. And so because I believe that, when I see someone who is not quite doing that, I believe it is my responsibility to help them with that. Because if it were me and I was having a negative impact and I were harming kids, I would so want somebody to tell me. And when I, I break it down, I say, look, if I got spinach in my teeth or toilet paper on my shoe, let me know. Don't have me out here looking <laughs> crazy and definitely don't have me out here harming people. So um, on the school end, that's our responsibility. So you had mentioned, um, you know, no more meetings about how to change this or how to change that or what we should be doing. And a lot of those meetings, like they lead to nothing. Right. It's just a bunch of people talking about the issues. And then they set another meeting to talk about the issue and then another meeting to talk, you know, um, but my, my, I guess I'd be more, most interested in, in learning how you plan to address those at Central. But not only that, just to make a comment on the way that parents can interact. From my experience, and I'm sorry, I'm a Highland Park graduate. I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> but one of the issues that I had was my parents didn't necessarily speak the language. It wasn't a situation where they could, uh, uh, one of my teachers could call them and say, hey, Hali was great in class today. Because the first thing that they think of when they get a phone call is that I did something bad, right? Or I'm in trouble. Um, there was no transportation wasn't always an option to get from where we lived on the west side to Highland Park for teacher conferences. My dad worked third shift, you know, I mean, there are all these other barriers in place. And I love that idea of like parents being super involved, but also that there's huge barriers to that. And, and I, I hear that from my sisters. Um, I have two sisters who are teachers as well that, you know, she was having a really difficult time with the student and she could never get a hold of the parent. And one day the parent came in and they were able to talk and she was like, okay, there was all these things that was keeping her from contacting me back. There were all these things that made it impossible for her to come meet me during the day. And it really breaks my heart because I know that you guys want to help all the students, especially students who have those barriers. But like you're already, teachers are already underpaid and, and under-resourced that that makes it difficult. But I don't know. That's a long rant with kind of a question. But in it. You, but Hilly, what you're but what you're bringing up is legitimate. So, you know, for many American Indian families, we have more of a traumatic experience with with education because of the boarding schools, because of federal policies that were put in place, not to educate us, but to assimilate us, right? To to teach us trades. Um, to, you know, wipe out our culture. And so not all Native families, but many Native families are are still dealing with that. And so, you know, I think, I you know, when I hear about, you know, I and my wife, we were very engaged with our children's education, right? So, so that was, you know, that was a non-brainer. I used to work for St. Paul Public Schools for a short while. So, you know, I've, I think though I think those of us who are here on this on this podcast um, would be very engaged with our with our children in schools, but we also know you know maybe others in my even even my immediate family may not have been as engaged, and so there are barriers that many families, particularly our families of color from our BIPOC communities, have. Um, have traumas in their life with either with their own education or with how education was used. Or and how so, it is used today. Exactly. And so, you know, we have to, we have to, you know, how do we reach out to those parents and, and help them be engaged? Or do we, you know, I just recently <laughs> was, uh, got recruited by the American Indian Parent Association for Roseville Schools. Now, I live in Roseville, but we lived in a portion of Roseville that's actually attached to Moundsview. But they reached out to me, and I agreed to be on their parent association, even though I don't have a kid in school, because we're still dealing with those type of, of issues, right? How do we reach those parents and, and help them to become more engaged with their children's education? It really is the, the, the different view of all their different communities and how we see education or the role of schools, right? Like for my parents, 
when my mother wasn't allowed to go to school and my dad went to school and it was very much like, you know, if you did something bad, you'd physically get a slap on the hand and stuff like that. And and nobody called home unless it was something desperate because, you know, phones weren't easy to access. And so coming to a new country and not understanding that the systems are so different here and that you as a parent are being asked to be involved, wherein as your home country, you may never have been involved. You may never have even known the teacher's names. A lot of times you're sending your kids out of the village and they'd have to live elsewhere to be able to go to school. And so all these kind of play into the way that, you know, BIPOC and immigrant and refugee students have been treated um, in, in the education system over these many years. So I think what we start with is the idea that at a, at a school level, we have to recognize that there is school hurt, that a lot of our families um, are dealing with school hurt, right? And, and that being said, then we have to make sure that we are removing the barriers that are present. We, we have to remove those barriers. Um, the pandemic has shown us that there are lots of ways for us to get in touch with families. Um, and we have Zoom. Uh, so our parent advisory committee, our PAC uh, at Central, has started having their meetings on Zoom. We did that the last two years. And we got a lot more um, engagement. And so we have to um, get rid of that narrative that the only way a parent can be engaged is if they actually show up physically at school. Um, so, so that's the first part of it. And recognizing that when we're hearing frustration from people, um, that frustration is not always aggression. That can sometimes be an issue, this, you know, this idea of, of um, seeing people or perceiving them as, as being aggressive, as being an issue. Um, and recognize that we are a service profession. And as a service profession, we are there to serve others. And that if there are barriers, it is our job to eliminate them or to remove some of those barriers because we have the capacity to do so. So as it relates to um, language, Lee, you mentioned that. We have Language Line, which is a service where we can call this number and there are a bank of interpreters just waiting waiting to talk to us and to help. And they can make the phone call to uh, a family and we have a three-way phone call with that person interpreting. Um, and, and that's especially a nice thing to have right now because, you know, um, just like a lot of places, we're down employees. There's, uh, we, we've got a shortage. Um, but if we don't have an in-person interpreter or uh, liaison who can help with that, we've got language line. Um, there's also uh, a website that we can use to um, translate our newsletters. It's called S'more. S'more translates newsletters into a multitude of languages. And so we can do that. Um, we have a department uh, within our district uh, where they do translation services. And you just have to, you have to plan ahead, right? And make sure that whatever uh, documents you're sending out that you have a time to put them through translation services to make sure that we are meeting the needs. And here's the thing, meeting needs is not always convenient. Okay. Hmm. We have to um, not expect that, that meeting the needs of, of everyone is going to be convenient and that's okay. 
You know, it's it's like a, a slow cook restaurant. You know, we're going to sit down for a minute, but we're going to get it right. OK, um, so there's so many resources out there to help us to make connections and to build relationships. And that's our job. You know, we again, we do a really good job of serving white families and wealthy families and those with access and those with resources. And I promise you that no matter what we do to serve those who are underserved, we will never stop being good at serving white families and wealthy families and those who are savvy and in the know. They will always get what they need every time and twice on Sunday. They will always get what they need. And because of that, our most important work is to make sure that we are meeting the needs of those um, who are not. And, you know, as we talk about gaps, I like to call it the oppression gap. It's not an achievement gap. Um, it could be a belief gap, but that belief comes from oppression because who is struggling in our schools? It is those who come from communities that have historically been oppressed in this country and in this world. So, so first of all, <laughs> I'm sitting over here holding back tears a little bit because this is this is one of my my community big sisters. This is one of, um, and and in a seat uh, uh, of a school that uh, helped me eat. Um, in a time when I was going to school and didn't have a place to sleep or eat, and so I, I, I there, there's some sentiment, there, there's some sentiment here, also to to um, the energy that you're bringing because so much of our conversations and experiences occasionally have been what I consider flat-footed conversations. We're caught back. We're responding to, and the energy that you bring in so far, um, as we're talking about this, is very much on your toes. It's leaning into. It's saying, "What can we do? What will we do?" And that creativity is not only refreshing, but it it it, it gives me a great sense of hope for the school that my kids are already know that they're going to go to. They get to choose wherever they want to for college. They do not get to choose where they go to high school. Um, and, and so and so that's coming up for me. But but. All of that to say is, is as a black leader of a system, tackling, trying to pull, pull groups together to do this and lean into this head on, there's a creativity that I'm really excited about. And what comes to mind is, is, is and I'll let y'all know this, y'all, um, when we were in the throes of covering the Chauvin trial and it was decision week, and that same week we had another young man killed, um, I, along with, with several clergy, were called to hold the vigil for Dante Wright's family at the site of the killing. And it also coincided uh, with a time when, Sharice, uh, you had organized uh, a group to me to speak to a group of the parents on, on what you call it, PAC. Um, and, and, and instead of rescheduling, here's what I love. Y'all created a space for basically a live report from the field. Right after I got done with, with the uh, vigil, uh, and holding the space there, I hopped in the car, got onto the Zoom call on my phone, and y'all had set it up. It was like, it it it, it was like taking the opportunity and making that something that everybody now, because everybody's feeling it anyway. And now folks on that call got to got to see and hear the space around that moment. And this is before, and this is while the curfew. I think y'all were talking me through as the curfew was ending, and I was trying to get home, and y'all. Got kept me on the phone until I got to a space where you knew I was gonna get home. All right, like that. 
level of community love and, and just creative use of space was 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 beautiful. And again, it's one of the things that I've seen out of you as long as I've known you and you've taught me about educating our babies. So so here's here's my wondering. You've got this, you've got this historic seat, right? It was held by Merrick McBee for for decades, right? Uh, uh, one one principal. And, and so now you're you're in this spot that has all this memory, all this community connection. The mayor is a is a is a alum. Uh, uh, all of my family was alum. <laughs> uh, you got all these folks to to carry this back, and it's not denigrating any other school. I'm just you know this is where you're at, you know. And so, what are some of the creative things that you see real just dope possibilities? In particular, those that feed and nourish the soul of Black, Brown, and Indigenous babies. Yes. So one of the things we we already know that um, because of Brown v. Board of Education, that we lost tens of thousands of Black teachers. Okay. Um, And so when people and maybe a lot of people don't know it's because of Brown v. Board of Education. Um, But people are always saying, where are the black teachers? Where are the black educators? We lost them in Brown. And when we lost them, then we didn't have then those those uh, generational professions. Right. Because a lot of people become teachers because their parents were teachers. And so if you ask a lot of of teachers here. Um, and, and that's been my experience uh, uh, across the board in, in lots of different schools. If you ask a teacher, oh, what made you become a teacher? Oh, my mom was a teacher or my dad was a teacher. And so it's kind of a family business in a sense. So we lost a lot of that. So how do we get that back? Right. So one of the things I'm looking hold, at hold is. Sharice, uh, real quick, just I think that's an important point that I'd love to have you as an educational you know, leader and scholar break down for us. How did we lose those teachers in Brown? And I was going to ask her the same thing, if she could break that down yeah. so we can understand what happened. Sure. So and it, it's so interesting and layered. So after Brown v. Board of Education and, and schools were to be desegregated and all of the black children were to go to school, um, you know, at, at white schools or integrated schools, the question becomes, well, who is going to teach them? And rest assured, the white folks at that time were not going to allow their children to be taught by black teachers or to be in buildings where they were led by Black principals. And so all of those Black teachers were laid off or fired. Um, and it was oftentimes teachers who had more experience um, than, than their white counterparts were released from jobs and careers, really, because it's not just a job, but careers and, and, and life callings, right? Their life's calling. They were, they were released from that. And had to find something else to do. Uh, and so so that is where all the teachers went. Um, and we lost tens of thousands of Black educators at that time. Wow. You, that's a part, that's a dynamic that often um, our history is not shared. That deeper understanding of that cause and effect. So we hear of the considered the positive side in terms of desegregation and allowing our black children to go to white schools, um, you know, breaking that separate but equal, that equal uh, tenant that was in place at the time. But the backside of that was the loss of all these black educators. And I have to admit, 
that is something totally new to me that I'd never even contemplated or was aware that has happened. And the other thing, the only other thing that I can um, probably make make a, a, a comparison to is when Rail, when uh, railroads switched from passenger freight to regular freight, when they stopped moving people, our black community lost thousands of jobs as porters, hat cap checks, I mean, across the board. So, but unbeknownst to me, I did not know that we suffered those same losses with Brown, with the Board of Education. That that just blows me away. But you're right. Soon as you mention that and you start thinking about it, who was not, it was the same thing with the railroads, who was not going to be brought into the, the office buildings were the black but, employees. As you wow. were describing that, Sharice, I was, I'm thinking about what's hap- still happening now with a lot of schools, especially in the first and second ring suburbs where there's either um, tuition that a lot of families of color can't afford or they're not allowing people to be bused in from other areas because they want to keep their school, quote unquote, local, which in my mind really just means we want to keep our school white. Like we don't need, you know, I I, I have a, a student that I used to mentor and she lived right on the cusp of, of Minneapolis and, and um, Eden Prairie. And it was one of those where she, you know, her mom really wanted her to go to the Eden Prairie school because they had better graduation rates and better test scores and all that stuff. But she was just outside and she felt, you know, when she was, when she finally was able to go to that school, she just felt so othered like we talked about earlier, right? So I feel like as you were describing that, that still happens now with students. And I'm sure teachers as well. I just want to say for for the listeners real quick, if a school district tries to tell you that uh, they can't enroll you because you're outside of that and they won't allow you to open enroll, by law, they have to enroll you if they have space. So if you're encountering that and you feel like there's some fishiness happening there, you you got some some rights and support for you. But But Sister Sharice, come jump in. Yeah, so a couple couple of things. Um, so I'll do you one better than even just the the Brown v. Board and how we lost a lot of teachers of color. Um, a lot of people also don't know is that there were a lot of Black folks at that time that did not want schools integrated. So the thing around Brown v. Board of Education was very political as it related to integration of many spaces. And Martin Luther King talked about, and and I'm going to, I'm not going to quote him because I'm not going to get the quote right. But his sentiment, a lot of people do not know, Martin Luther King Jr. was not particularly in favor of school integration. Now, I know he has his I Have a Dream speech, but that was his dream, right? But what he knew in reality is that at that time, White folks were not ready to teach Black children. They were not able and not ready at that time to see them as human. And so he talked about the preciousness of childhood and of youth and that our children needed to be protected from at that time, what would have been very explicit bias. If we remember, my husband talks about it all the time. People took off work 
to go protest. People took off work and brought their children with them to hold up signs and yell and scream at children who were trying to go to school and spit on them. People took off work to do those things. And so there were plenty of people, Black folks, who did not want integrated schools. They didn't, they didn't want them because they were being taken care of, cared for, loved, and nurtured by Black folks in the community who understood the importance of the work that they were doing. What they wanted was the equal part. We don't want hand-me-down books. We don't want run-down schools with leaks and all that other kind of stuff and rodents. That's not what we wanted. So as and as an educator and, and an education scholar, that's something that I, I wrestle with. Like, where do we go from here? And so now we are in this, this, this place of integration. And I believe that there are so many beautiful things that we can learn from each other. But what we have to do is continue to have the conversation and then continue to hold ourselves accountable because we cannot continue to produce the same results that we did before. And because we didn't do the kind of testing that we do now that came with No Child Left Behind, where we're disaggregating uh, our scores by race, because we didn't do that pre-Brown v. Board of Education, we don't know the totality of what we lost. And so that's why I don't like to hear achievement gap, because it's not an achievement gap. It is an oppression gap, and it is the systemic intentional oppression of black and brown and other people of color that has led us to this moment. And because we are here and because we're not going back, then again, we have to hold ourselves accountable to make sure that we're not producing those adverse, uh, disparate outcomes. But that is also why we are seeing a big push in a lot of communities of color to have their own schools, to have these charter schools. Yes, and, exactly. and I'm not a mm -hmm. huge fan of charters because they're not held to the same standards. Um, and, and, and they don't, and they take resources away from public schools. But I also believe as public schools that we have to be accountable. And it's not enough to just say, well, we're public schools fund us. We have to change our outcomes. And to change our outcomes, again, we have to continuously be in a state of uh, critical self-reflection. And we have to hold ourselves accountable to that data and radically transforming what it looks like so that our outcomes are not predictable by race. Sharice, you, you, you have a couple of times now used the, your term oppression gap. And I would go one further and say yes. And, and I, my, um, my analogy, if you will, along those lines from a public policy standpoint is that it's an opportunity gap, right? Because our children, our BIPOC children are not extended the same opportunities that they, uh, would see from the dominant society for one. But I would challenge to go even further than that because in the principle of equity, equity mandates that you meet the child and the person where they're at, right? So equal doesn't mean equity either. And so it's about understanding what opportunities uh, are being withheld or not fully extended to our, our BIPOC children. And then beyond that, what are we doing to level the playing field 
from an equity standpoint for our children who are disadvantaged, either economically, uh, socially, whatever, linguistically, as, as Hali was, was saying earlier. Uh, so I, I'd love to hear your, your viewpoint on that. But then I also want to ask a provocative question with regard to your uh, remarks along the lines of Bro uh, Brown versus Board of Education that the, the white teachers weren't ready and that's why Dr. King Jr. wasn't supportive. My question there is, are the white teachers ready now? <laughs> right? I mean, because, and I know that's a provocative question. I can see the reactions of my, of my <laughs> colleagues here um, because many would argue not so much, right? That, that, that the burden, if you will, has been placed on our children to navigate the system. And rather than having the system get redesigned, right? Because the system, as you said earlier, continues to be the same system that was quite honestly part of the Brown B Board of Education system, right? It hasn't really changed. And so that's my, my question as, as provocative as they may be and maybe uncomfortable for some folks, but are the white teachers really ready now? And if not, what, what do we need to do, right? Um, to have the system change and be responsive to the students rather than placing that burden on the families and the students themselves. Yep. Okay. So, so to your first point about the opportunity gap, I actually, I'm going to push back on that one. Um, I think oppression trumps opportunity because the opportunity gap, if we just provide people with more opportunities, that will close the gap. And we've been providing people with different opportunities. There are all kinds of programs out there and that, that are providing people with opportunities. And so then when the gap still doesn't close, we can say, see, we provided you with opportunities. We provided them with opportunities, but it still didn't close. I think oppression gap is, is a stronger term. And I think it's more accurate because it, it, it goes back to why the opportunities have been withheld. And, and it goes to the, the mindset of what happens when you know that there are people in a community that have been oppressed and they are continuing to suffer under that oppression. So that's why I say oppression gap um, on, on that one. And, and as to your, your provocative question around, are white teachers ready? That's a complicated question because I don't want to lump people, right? So here's the thing. There are mm -hmm. some teachers of color who are not ready mm -hmm. because of that same oppression mm -hmm. gap and because of oppressive mindsets. So there are people who are ready and people who show up and engage in that critically self-reflective work and do it every day and are, are moving the meter. And then there are people who are not, who are stuck, who, who are of all colors, who are harming children based on their implicit bias, based on their explicit bias, right? And so I, I don't think it's as simple as talking about individual teachers or even groups of teachers as being white or people of color. But what we do have to look at is whiteness, right? Not white folks, but whiteness. And whiteness is um, pervasive in our system. Um, as an educated woman um, who is working on her PhD. Um, I am a person who understands how to operate within whiteness. And I have been successful operating and moving within whiteness and in white spaces. And that's why I am where I am. But that being said, I have to, again, constantly be critically self-reflective. And when I know I am asking certain things of children, 
or having certain expectations of children, I have to make sure that I am not doing it through the lens of whiteness, where I have been very successful, but through a lens of love and of high expectations and recognizing that I don't need people, um, specifically the students, I don't need them to conform to necessarily what what whiteness says is appropriate, right? So for example, um, dress code. And dress code gets really sticky. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it gets it does. so, <laughs> so sticky. And um, I was having a conversation with um, a colleague who we, we also went to school together. And the conversation was, and I've had this conversation with lots of folks. There was no way that back in the late 1900s, we would be allowed to show up at school dressed the way that we allow and permit kids to dress now. Period. Right? But I'll just take one part of the dress code. Hats. Okay? Um, and I had this conversation with my mother um, because she says, well, wearing a hat indoors is disrespectful. I said, why? Why is it disrespectful? Well, it just is. I said, but how does that disrespect you? Like, how does, like, I'm just wearing a hat. It's not covering up my face, so it's not an issue of safety. I feel comfortable with a hat on my head or a hood. Maybe I'm having a bad hair day. Why is that disrespectful to you? And that was something I had to check for myself because I recognized, um, you know, wearing a hood or a hat was against school rules. So as the person who was in the position to enforce school rules, like when I was a dean, it was, okay, hey, how you doing? Take that hat off. Take that hood off. And what I realized is I was creating separation between me and students for an unnecessary reason. Because some people, whiteness, some people were just really just couldn't, couldn't get off that one thing. And it was a way for them to then engage in a negative way and have a negative interaction with students who are particularly black and brown every morning. And it wasn't necessary. And to have that conversation with adults who also grew up in whiteness and they were acculturated to say, hey, this is not okay. It's like, why is it not okay? Let's let's deal with that. Why is it not okay? Well, we, we can't see the kids. Mm, I don't know about that. We have young ladies who wear hijab and, and it's religious and it's beautiful and we know who they are and it's not any more obstructive than a hat. Like we have to consistently have those conversations and we have to not be afraid to change our mindset about things. We have to be willing to be disturbed, interrogate our beliefs really figure out why do we believe what we believe and that if it does not align with with our beliefs around um, expectations and that everyone can thrive, then we have to be willing to change the rules. Sharice, I, I have to comment because the example you used, I've shared on a previous counter stories that I actually was suspended from West High School in Minneapolis for wearing a hat. Or, or for someone suspending me saying I was wearing a hat when, in fact, I had taken it off and left the <laughs> building. But I was suspended for that very reason. Well, Don, there's also um, the, this new program in South Carolina where they're giving away belts 
They have a no more sagging oh, really? campaign, and they're I giving mean, away belts. They're giving away students. belts. Yeah. We hear all the time about kids being, black kids being suspended because of their hair. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And we haven't even got to the content of what's being taught in schools. So, and this is kind of where I was headed early in our conversation, which means you definitely have to come back. <laughs> because I'm, you know, I'm old school, okay? I was in school with your mother, even though we were at opposite centrals. However, when I think of the content of what I was taught, it was missing many, many historical parts that had anything to do positively with who I am as a black indigenous individual. There was nothing positive in my education that I learned about who I was as a Native American, other than I was a savage and how the West was won, which means somebody lost it. And the people who lost it were us. The only thing I heard about us, other than W.D. Du Bois, and you know, there are a few, there are a few main characters, um, individuals that we learn about in terms of who were black. But the overall messaging is that we're descendants from slaves. And so those type of things don't build self-esteem in our children. And then all the rest of the um, subject matter, well, you know, I do remember being very critical of what I was being taught. But, but so for me, it's like... <clears throat> in this current political environment that we have in our country that is kind of pulling us apart divisively along those same lines where we now have states banning books, right? We have states putting policies in place stating that we can't teach certain parts of our history. The example you used of uh, folks leaving work, bringing their children to spit and protest against our kids going to white schools is the content they are now trying to ban us being able to talk about and teach in our current educational system. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. just blows my mind. And so for me, when I hear discussions and I, and I continue to think about how our children aren't succeeding, I always think that it, nothing's changed in that class or the content of what's being taught. Does that make sense? I think sense? that goes back to the, the whiteness that Sharice was talking about earlier, right? Is like we didn't learn about anything about Hmong people um, or Southeast Asian people in general except that there was a war. And my parents were so traumatized they never told us what had occurred. So all I had was what I was learning in school and I wanted to be white. I did. I was like, wow, it's so much easier if I was white. Like look if at I my white friends. If I use certain language, exactly. if I use certain norms, if I norm certain things that are outside of my cultural space, if I jump to the comfort of white folks around me, mm -hmm. things just feel seem like they go better. If if I'm in a, yes. a, a a situation where there's there's danger or frustration or anger and stuff like that, if I code switch into white normed behaviors, things are going to feel better to me if I comply. Just because yes, power exactly. dynamic and the, the, where you're where you're where you're hitting at is 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 
is real is real essential to me. You know, uh, Sister Cherise, you you as you were giving these examples made me, especially using the hat rule, dress codes, things like that. So much of those confrontations that folks chose to do just because they had a mindset that said that they had to do that are so rooted. I I, I got to think about the folks who could tell me to take off my hat or change my dress code. Mm. I never had that issue when I ran into yo mama, <laughs> yo aunties, my aunties in in spaces, right? If they told me to take my hood off, it wasn't, it was, it did, never felt like a confrontation thing, right? It never felt like I was trying to exert power and compliance, which is how a lot of these rules are 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 enforced, even if they're present, right? I could think of at Central, right? If cer- there are certain folks in there who, if they're like, hey, I need you to take your hat off, we're about to do this thing, I'm not even, I'm still in conversation with my friends and the hat's popping off and 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 I'm not tying it to your need for power control. Um, and even more so, the folks, if I could think about who asked me to do that, had a reason to do that, right? Um, you know, I, I get distracted, you know, I had one teacher tell me, hey, I get distracted by all the stuff on there and and I've got all this stuff going on. So so meet me halfway in this one. And I'll tell you what, as soon as we go to group work, boom, you can do your thing. And I was like, all right, cool. There was like a, a respect and understanding and, there, and, and it wasn't just along racial lines that this happened. Um, but I definitely encountered folks trying to, I don't know, trying to have the respect and rapport that, that I had from community members who were educators in the space around me um, and and failing to understand that there's a whole lot of history, community, and relationship that is built to the point for you get to, to get to make requests of me that, that are on your terms and not necessarily on mine. There's care that went along with that, right? And some mutual understanding and respect. That wasn't universal. I often encountered it from my white teachers uh, um, and 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 uh, actually, and some students, teachers of color who had this mindset um, that was where it was about you're in my house, <laughs> it's my time, I have the power and control, and it was about exerting that rather than having some kind of mutual respect thing, right? So certain folks could tell me to do that and had no problem, or ask me to do something and had no problem. Other folks, oh, this is a battle line that I'm going to fight for because I'm not just fighting to to not listen to you, I'm fighting to keep my identity. And some sense of power because everybody around's trying to take power from me. We got we got to have you back because there's so many places to go down. In the time that we have left, though, I need to ask you because you came, you're coming in with this creative, beautiful, awesome energy. I want to know, sister, what is exciting you the most in terms of creative things that you're you're seeing either coming to fruition or that you are excited about taking opportunity for? Wow. So. It is only the second day of school. <laughs> so, oh, and come on. You know, I know I, I you've been thinking stuff. about this for a long time. I, I got some <laughs> stuff. But just as it relates to it coming to fruition, um, gotcha. a lot of the, the great creative things that, that I want to have happen haven't come to fruition yet. Again, because it is yeah. just the second day of school. Um, but some of the ideas that I'm looking forward to implementing are um, kind of artist residencies. So um, I was uh, kind of getting to this earlier as it relates to, we don't have a whole lot of teachers who are people of color. We don't. It's Minnesota, Brown v. Board, ain't a whole lot of us. That being said, there are a lot of community members who are experts in many things who are not teachers per se, but still have something to give and something to teach. And so I would love to bring in some resident artists to come in and work with our students on a multitude of things. So one that we're working on right now 
um, is with some, some art, some social justice art. And so how do we work with our students to, um, to share their voice uh, and their voice around social justice and making an impact at 275 North Lexington inside the building and outside the building. A lot of people say the central looks like a prison um, and we don't want it to. So there's actually a committee called Transforming Central. They've been at that work for, I want to say 10 years or a little more than 10 years. And so we used to have, for example, two staircases that go up and now we just have one. And then the other side has some, uh, a beautiful, uh, garden, um, we also there there's some um really intentional work that went into these giant tanks that are underground that collect rainwater and make sure that the water that is is coming um through you know the land at central high school is filtered before it goes out um into the to the river and our science classes can come out and test that water that's in the tanks and learn a multitude of things um, we actually, we just had, um, a generous donation of a patio installed, um, up, upstairs. So we've got several, um, tables and chairs, uh, and even, um, kind of like umbrellas, um, that are there where students can come and sit and they'll sit out there before school starts. Um, we're trying to work out a system where they can sit out there during the day, sometimes during lunch. It gets difficult to supervise, um, but it is something that we're trying to work out. And we even have parents that have brought plants and we have plants on every table. And after day two, I'm a knock on wood, those plants are all still there. And no one has, <laughs> no, no one has done anything. The plants are still there. Um, our kids like nice things. Um, every morning, we started the day with music. So when we had um, new student orientation, we had music, we had the cheerleaders, and we were dancing as, as our families and our kids came in. And it just felt so good. It was such a good energy. I said, we need to have music every day. And so every day, granted, it's just been two, but we have music as kids are coming into our building um, because it, it starts the day off better, right? And I told them today when I went out there, I said, hey, do you have requests? We'll have a, re a request line where if there are certain songs you want to hear, we'll, we'll take your request. So we put that out there. Um, I, I'm really committed to student voice and student leadership and finding out what are some things that we can do to serve you better in the four years that you're here. Because I am a service professional. My job is to serve students. So how can I help you to get out of this experience at Central that that is a, an experience that propels you to where you want to be? And when I met with um, students at orientation day or on orientation day, I told them, I said, look, whatever adult made sure that you were here today and registered you for to attend school at Central High School, I said, when you leave here, you need to thank them. Tell them thank you because they have set you up for a successful rest of your life. And then I told the adults that I told the kids that. And so in telling them that, I now have more of a responsibility to make sure that that's true. Because I ain't trying to lie. So <laughs> I want to make sure that students are having a most successful four years. And one of the only ways that I can tell if that's happening is by listening to students. 
So we'll have a lot of, we'll have um, regular monthly meetings with grade levels in the auditorium. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's celebrate each other. How are you, you know, winning here at Central um, and making sure that we're recognizing all of our, our students and not just for academic stuff. The academic stuff is important. It is most important. But there are other things that make a person a good person other than being strong at academics. And school is not just about academics. And you can go off in life and, and have some success without necessarily being really great at all of the academic stuff. Now, that's not an excuse to say, sorry, you, you just not gonna, you just not gonna make it. It's not an excuse for that, but recognizing that there are people who have a lot of great talents and skills and are out there making money. And it's not necessarily just from academics. Well, we, we've had a president who embodied that. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I, I want to thank you so much. We, we, we have to have a part two. Because I think you know a, a, a question that is on a lot of our minds is 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 really around that kind of care. You you bring forward a level of expectation, energy, and a spiritual care um, that I think is something that we need to talk about in terms of the full wide around education. But I want to thank you so much for not just coming on and 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 getting us some and dropping some of these jewels. That's why we need to have you back to drop some more of these jewels. You just unofficially became the 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 patriot educational scholar for for, for counter stories for this year but um, right. i i, I want to just thank you for for bringing that 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 what we can do energy you said earlier that you're not a person who likes to sit and admire the problem that we need to be in here talking about what we're going to do because that urgency is here and and i think that's a fitting way to 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 for folks who are listening as we think about what our kids are going to need throughout this year They've had a lot of we've had a lot of reactive responses throughout the pandemic and throughout our reckoning uh, in education systems that seem to be cyclical. So we're we're about the year where everybody gets real refocused on education, on what it is, on redefining it and all those kinds of things. We had we, we, we're we're about that. We're at about that time again in that cycle. Um, and so I, I think Ella Fitzgerald said it best. Uh, just she said, just don't give up what you're trying to do where there is love and inspiration. I don't think you can go wrong. And what I've seen out of you so far and all of the times that I've known you is a love and an inspiration, not just for our babies, but for us getting this right. Uh, this has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've stated are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. Having said that, I would also throw out another quote from... Uh, Marion Wright Edelman says, um, if you can't see it, you can't dream it. So you, Sharice, being the educator that you are and the leadership position that you are, you are inspiring hundreds and hundreds of young children to follow in your footsteps. And don't, don't begin to lose track of that. Your strength goes beyond your position. Your strength goes into the community, inspiring uh, young BIPOC children to grow up to be just like you. And I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. I'm Sharice Ayers, principal of the St. Paul Central Senior High School and the proudest principal on the planet. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the Other Media Group, 
and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.